Our Bible reading today tries to summarise some of the highlights of 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. And 1 Samuel chapter 13 starts on page 282 in your Bible. And those highlights will appear on the screen if you'd prefer to follow it from there. So I'm starting at chapter 13, verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now on to verse 3. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. On to verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing. Samuel said, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Now on to the last verse of the chapter. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Carrying on, chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, Let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now on to verse 13. 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Finally, on to verse 20. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim 
heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Please keep your Bibles open. And thank you, Debbie, for reading those verses to us. And as we begin to understand those verses, let's come at uh, uh, it with a simple question. Politics. Uh, where do politicians go wrong? Uh, most of us don't care very much about politics. As the election gets nearer, we might get a little bit more excited. But you know, people who are not interested can stay up all night watching the trends and wanting to see who wins. Next day, massive excitement, especially if the whole country agrees with you if you've chosen the right person. Everyone's feeling happy. One year later, people are beginning to get bored. Nothing's really changing. Next election, what happens? That guy goes out and the new person comes in and the outgoing uh, leader uh, loses all his friends and he'll probably only have one person left in his camp and that's his wife. And everybody else is gone. That's how it is in politics, isn't it? Well, in this part of the Bible, there has not been an election. There's only been an appointment. A man called Saul has been given a job and he's been raised up uh, with only one thing to do and that is to kill Philistines in chapter 9 verse 10. Simple job description in chapter 9 verse 16 rather. So you would expect that if that's what his job is he will use the 3,000 men that he's got in chapter 13 verse 2 for that purpose. The only problem is the guy who's killing Philistines in chapter 13 and chapter 14 is not called Saul, he's called Jonathan. Saul is sitting on his hands, we'll see and come to him later, but the king is actually quite weak. When you look at verse 1 closely, you think that it's quite a strong king because you can see he was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. But let me tell you that in the original, verse 1 isn't as clear as it looks in that verse. Let me tell you what it literally says. Verse 1 says... Saul was a son of a year when he reigned two years over Israel. Confusing, isn't it? A year and then two years he was king. Now that's a year between his anointing and his coronation. We've seen that between chapters 8 and 11. One year has gone by. And then there are two years when he's king before he is rejected in chapter 15, verse 23. 
We'll come to that next week. Chapter 15, 23 says, Samuel telling him, uh, uh, in verse 23, the Lord, you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Just two years. So chapters 13, 15 are the years that God has made Samuel, uh, Saul his acceptable king. Then he rejects him. Now he'll keep limping on, being the king of Israel, until the end of this book. So chapter 13, is verse 1 is right. He reigned over Israel for 42 years. That's true. But he was a weak king. He was rejected after two years. Because he was weak. And yet there are two, two lessons we can learn from Saul's weakness. Here's the first lesson. Oh, sorry, that he was a weak person and he failed. Okay, here's the first lesson you can learn about Saul's weakness. How to handle weakness. Actually, it is Saul's son Jonathan who teaches us that in chapter 13 verse 3. Because what Jonathan does, he attacks the Philistines, the outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Okay? This is big trouble. Because Jonathan has just plunged his whole country into massive weakness. So the Philistines have uh, a hornet's nest uh, approach to uh, trouble. I don't know if you get hornet's nests in the Philippines, but uh, if you strike a hornet's nest, the whole lot come out and they get you. Okay? Now, in chapter 5, you see all the Philistines swarming out. Uh, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 13, rather, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The poor Israelites, you see, stop counting after they've added up all the charioteers and horsemen. They can't count anymore like that. They give up. They just run. And so therefore, in verse 6, they scurry off into every hiding place they can find. Some emigrate in verse 7. And you might think, hey, at least there are going to be some, some brave guys around, okay? Surely. Saul's chosen 3,000 people. At least they're going to stand up and fight, aren't they? Except if you look at verse 7, and everybody is quaking. It's a weak nation. They're all scared. And part of that, I suppose, has got something to do with the fact that, uh, as it says in the heading... We didn't read this part, but the second part of chapter 13, it says, Israel's without weapons. Now, we won't go through all that now because it will take time, but essentially, the Philistines made sure that no one in Israel had anything sharp <laughs> apart from what they used in their fields. Only Saul and Jonathan had swords. Now, you can understand the country being weak when a well-armed enemy comes to attack it. Look, the message is this. There are times it's okay to be weak and this is one of them. 
There are going to be times when you feel weak. And that's okay. But like in everything, there's a good way to handle weakness and a bad way to handle weakness. Thor's problem actually is not that he is weak. It is that he trusted himself in his weakness. Let me explain what happened. Samuel told him way back in chapter 10 verse 8 to go and wait for him in Gilgal. So here's Saul waiting in chapter 13 verse 8. He's waiting for Samuel to come to him at Gilgal. But no Samuel. The best men are leaving. Remember those 3,000 guys in chapter 13, verse 2? Well, you look at verse 15, and they're now down to 600. Everybody's on the run. And so what happens? Saul offers the burnt offerings without waiting any longer. At least he'll show people that he's trying to get God on his side. And then, of course, he'd been very happy to see Samuel come. Now, Samuel actually comes and he squeezes underneath the deadline. He's still there within the seven days he promised. He just comes later than anybody expected. And when he comes, he is not impressed. He says, what have you done? If you know your Bible, you know he's sounding a bit like God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, when he's talking to Adam and Eve. What have you done? Now, we might say, hey, Samuel, what's your problem? Saul's done something for God, hasn't he? Surely, offering burnt offerings is good. Does it really matter who does it? But, Samuel, but Saul does it, not because he wants to please God. He's doing it, not as a man under God, but a man who's so scared he now wants God to come under him and give him some help. And so he trusts himself to get God on his side. And you can see why if you look at verses 11 and 12. He is staring at the Philistines, not God. Chapter 13, verse 12. Uh, now I thought the Philistines will come down against Megilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. Um, and uh, uh, that's sorry, that's verse 12. In verse 11, he says the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I was looking at them, and I came up with my plan. You see, just fixing on the thing that worries you. And if you just simply stare at the thing that worries you, you're going to look to yourself to do something about it, to solve the situation. But fix your eyes on what God says and take your eyes, don't take your eyes off what God says and you will find yourself trusting Him. See, if you really wanted God, He could have gone to Him privately. Say, God, I'm scared stiff, please. Help me to know what to do. Samuel isn't here. But you are. Now, David did that later in the book, we'll see, when he's absolutely petrified. He goes and speaks to God. He, Saul could have done that too, 
didn't need to do the things that he was not meant to be doing. But he could still have sought God. And to stop the men running away, instead of trying to be a big man with the offering, he could easily have said, hey guys, stop. God is seriously bigger than the Philistines. You don't have to run. He could have preached the gospel to them in that sense and got them to stay. But instead, he stepped over the mark of what he was allowed to do. And when we step over the mark of what God says, and we do what we think we know better, essentially that shows we're trusting ourselves. And that is the definition of a fool in chapter 13, verse 13. That's what Samuel calls him. A fool is a person who will simply trust himself rather than listen to what God says about how we should respond. So when we trust ourselves, that's when we look at the problems and not at what God Word, God, God's word reveals and we become fools that is the wrong way to handle weakness but the amazing thing is that God wins through weakness and that's what you see in chapter 14 again it's Jonathan who doesn't like the Philistines being where they shouldn't be in chapter 14, uh, verse 1. There's a detachment of Philistines, and Jonathan doesn't want them there. They are in Israel. That's not good. What about Saul? Well, look at verse 2, and you see where he is. He is under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Instead, that's very, very far south. That's miles away from the action. And he's sitting under his pomegranate tree doing nothing. Now Jonathan doesn't ask his dad at the end of verse 1 about, or tell his dad about what he's going to do next. Presumably that's because his dad would have had him sitting right next to him under the pomegranate tree until the cows, or in this case the Philistines, came home. But instead, Jonathan goes out and he discovers what all God's people discover, that God wins through weakness. Let me explain how it started. Uh, the garrison that Jonathan is looking at is in a pretty tough location. If you look at verse 4, you see there are steep cliffs leading up to it. Uh, you probably don't know Hebrew, do you? Uh, it's a thing in Dagnum. I find people's Hebrews slipping. Um, but uh, one is called slippery, and the other is called thorny. In other words, you don't want to go anywhere near those inclines, even if you were a serious mountaineer. You don't want slippery and you don't want thorny, even if you know how to climb. But Jonathan, you see, is a good soldier. And a good soldier is hungry for a fight when he sees an opportunity. And the opportunity he sees is that the Philistines, hey, they love to attack in bulk. Get the numbers up and the Philistines are ready. At the moment they're getting their numbers up. 
But he knows that most of the troops in those days are just your common or garden farmers. They're not hardened war veterans. And therefore they like to attack in bulk. But if they've got things going wrong, they like to run off in bulk as well. And so if you can only take out this garrison while they're building up their forces, who knows what might happen with an early victory for Israel. And so he decides to take them on. It's actually a great military idea. Mezda has been in the army and he'll appreciate strategy of catching people up by surprise and getting others on the run. But it's a problem if your force is specially weak. And to take out the garrison, two people have got to fight 20. Now that's not a problem if you happen to belong to the Royal Artillery and you can fire a cannon to take out a garrison of 20. Easy. Not so easy if you've got a long climb and then you have to get to the top of the climb and do it in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Not when there's 2v20 and only one of you's got a sword. Now, imagine the armor bearer picked up a few swords of the first ones that fell and then he set to and started killing as well, but it's a risky game they were playing. But you see, Jonathan has seen the opportunity and he has got his eyes fixed on God. At the end of verse 6, you see that he is not looking at the Philistines. Chapter 14, verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's what he understands about this God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by fear. Now, just notice that Jonathan isn't presumptuous. Okay? He doesn't say, hey, we're definitely going to win. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to see where uh, it says that, yes, it. In verse 6, he's not being presumptuous. He's not saying, hey, this is definitely going to be our victory. He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Do you see that? Debbie and I went to a Nigerian wedding, and uh, we went to the reception. We'd never been anything like it really before. We were very impressed in lots of ways. But as the couple arrived, what happened was one pastor came up, and he grabbed a microphone, and he promised them. He said, you are going to have one amazing charge from God. Next pastor came up and said, you are going to have twins. And they will be special from God. Third pastor picked up the microphone, this time booming into it to dwarf out the other two. You are going to have three pairs of triplets who are special from God. Now let me tell you, I felt for that poor couple if they had three pairs of triplets. But I felt for them even more if they happened to be childless. Because you can be presumptuous in saying what just is no certainty to say. 
But Jonathan isn't like that. He says, perhaps the Lord will help us to win. And so they climb, they kill, and they cause chaos as the domino effect of panic goes down the Philistine ranks in uh, chapter 15. Uh, you can see uh, over the page. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Let me tell you that uh, the original puts it even more starkly than that. It uses the word terror three times in that one verse. It says, Terror broke out among all the troops, both in the camp and in the field. The outposts and the raiders were also terrified. The very earth quaked, and a terror from God ensued. I can understand when you've been gripped with fear like that, with terror like that. In verse 16, Israel has just got to mop up the, the enemy that is literally melting away. It didn't matter that the Israelites had no swords, because if you look at verse 20, the Philistines had more than enough swords to kill themselves with. That's what they did. And all the weak people in verse 22 who were in hiding discovered that God wins through weakness. In verse 23, do you see that? Of chapter 14. So on that day the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beit Avon. Now, we didn't read the last bit, but actually that's quite interesting because what happens is that the weak man, Saul, suddenly gets strong. He gets proud. And so what happens when the battle is won in verse 24 is that Saul starts wanting to get a reputation for himself. He says, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. All about him. And so therefore he bans everybody from eating because he's obsessed with his own glory. Now they'd be much better if they didn't have to fight on an empty stomach. You can see how David gets a bit of honey in verse 27 and the sugar hit does him a par of good. Jonathan, I meant. But this strong man is so obsessed with his own glory that he stops people eating and therefore they fight when they're weak. And in that sense, there's so many more Philistines that go home in verse 46 to fight another day. So strength becomes a problem. But weakness is the moment at which God powerfully delivers. Let me tell you, this story is part of a bigger story, which one day will take you to a man who is absolutely weak. He will be one day standing in front or being crucified in front of people with no clothes on. He will be crucified. 
he will be in his weakest possible position. And in that moment, through him, God will save the whole created universe that he has made. Because this is the God who wins through weakness. Now what can we learn from all of that? Well, if all this is new to you and you visited us from our estate, it might sound a bit strange to hear someone say it's okay to be weak. After all, everything that we hear, all the schools tell us, hey, you can be whoever you want to be, be strong. That's the mantra. But it's actually the kindness of God to put us in situations like these. We're not quite like this but in situations where we feel helpless to see the greatness of his rescue. The trouble is if we obsess with our problems, we'll be like people in a box, wondering how to get out of it. And if we just simply obsess with our problems, we will come up with our own strategies. And we'll get nowhere. And then what happens when people see themselves locked inside a situation they've got no hope of escaping from, then they choose little avenues of escape within the box of problems that they happen to be in. So they go after drugs, they go after alcohol, they go after any way that just blots out the problem for a while, but never gets them out of the box. But the point is that God can rescue us when we're weak. The helpless situation we're in is so that we will look to him. So please take in what he can do. Focus on that. Do it not because you want him to come and serve you and get you out of your box, but do it because you want to serve him and become useful to the God who can draw you out of your weakness. Well, if that's you, it'll be good for us to talk together afterwards and we bribe people to stay because the refreshment after service is just so good. Now, other people might be more used to church. And uh, Saul was someone who's pretty used to church, wasn't he? I mean, after all, he knew what to do with burnt offerings if you look at chapter 13, verse 9. This guy is in the know. He could pray in uh, chapter 14, verse 37. But we know that he really wanted his own glory. He wanted vengeance on his enemies. And therefore, when someone stopped him getting what he wanted in verse 44. He even wanted Jonathan killed. Read that another time and see how Saul, the proud man, wouldn't say sorry for his own mistake stopping people from eating and hamstringing his army from doing their work. Instead, he wants to blame Jonathan for the lack of success on that day. Jonathan, the one who caused the success on that day. So what do you find as you look at Saul, the guy who's used to God, who's used to church, who's used to doing those things? Well, 
what you find amongst church people is often very proud people. You see, weak is okay. It's pride that's the pits. And the lesson for us who go to church is please very clearly get a 2020 on this that pride is the greatest weakness of man in this world. Pride is the greatest weakness of man in this world. Because once we are gripped by pride, we'll do what Saul did with Jonathan. We'll end up not fighting the Philistines. We'll hate the Christians that God is using to win battles. Ultimately, Saul-like pride in the end led to the killing of Jesus. Because the church people who thought they were in with God wanted to reject him. I tell you, church people can be the greatest God-rejecting menace on earth. But what if you are part of our church family? And what if you're facing an unwinnable battle? And that is the desire to win the whole of the Beckentry estate out there for the Lord Jesus Christ. What might help us tonight? Well, you look around us, and we're pretty weak, aren't we? There's impressive people, as far as I can tell. Uh, But we're weak. The question is, are we going to stare at the largeness of the numbers and possibly the hostility of some people that there will be for us? Because if we stare that way, then we'll come up with our own strategies of winning this battle. We'll try and win friends, influence people and do things that fit in with them and please them and carry our baptism services of unbelievers and hope that that will somehow bring people into church a little bit more often. We'll hatch up ideas like that, run social projects, that sort of thing. But why don't we do what Jonathan did, which is simply to stare and stare at the God who can save. At the God who can save, in Jonathan's words, in chapter 14, verse 6, the God can save whether by many or by few. If we're many in this church, but God can save. But fret not if it's just a fear. God can say by many or by few. Just keep his word in front of you. And let's keep going out to make the Lord Jesus uh, and his wonderful power known to those on our estate who have the humility to see weakness and who want someone to rescue them. And may God help us as we do that uh, for his enormous glory. Let's pray.
that he will and uh, will stop. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for weakness. Please help us to handle it better by fixing on your word rather than on our worries. And through our weakness, please save and bring great glory to your name on our estate. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.